0: You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest
1: radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. The following program has been brought to you by The Barter House.
2: When you open the bottle and you drink the wine, it speaks for itself. Is it, you know, a wine that's made for food? Yes. Those types of wines are tend to be more rustic or have a little bit more body. Are there wines that are just pure out hedonistic pleasure? Sure, there's wines like that, that maybe from California, that are more cocktail wines or wines that are just big jammy fruit bombs. And those, I think, appeal to a certain group, group of people as well. I think the wines that Barterhouse specializes in is more of these food-friendly you know, rustic-style, um, biodynamic, organic wines that tend to be a bit more earthy come from someplace. So you can almost taste the terroir. You can almost feel this guy, this San Sarah was grown in this slaty, rocky soil. And so to me, that's the exciting part, that the wine feels like it comes from someplace.
3: Welcome to the main course. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My partner in crime, Patrick, is enjoying a bucolic weekend in Vermont. Our show today is all about meat. It's going to be a very meaty conversation. Come on down to Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Take the L train to Morgan Avenue. Brunch is being served. And um, we'll be launching into our meaty business in just a second. We'll be right back with our first guest, Graham Merriweather, and a discussion of his new documentary, American Meat. Welcome back. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. My first guest today is Graham Merriweather. Graham, you are the director, writer, and producer of a new documentary about the meat industry called American Meat. Um, welcome to the studio. And bring your microphone right close to your mouth so that people sure. can hear you. Okay. Because we don't have our headphones on, so I like, can't tell what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> um- for your benefit, I prepared a large number of questions. Actually, I'm really into the meat industry. I love it. I'm fascinated by it. I don't know what that says about my character, but I read a lot about it. I read a lot of trade blogs about it. I've been on some very interesting trips uh, to various types of facilities, establishments, and both you know, sort of non-commercial and very commercial. And um, so I was kind of excited that the press about your your film American meat promises a very balanced view mm-hmm. so let's let's jump right into that um, it's an 85 minute long feature uh, it's the first one you guys have made from your organization leave it better which we'll talk about in a few minutes um, and you spent four years traveling across the country interviewing sustainable farmers and those who work for commodity farms so how did you I mean you started out as a documentary for on Joel Salatin right from mm-hmm. Polyface Face Farms yep And that turned into something much bigger. What made you feel like you wanted to expand the scope there?
1: Well, uh, in 2006 or 2005, I read The Omnivore's Dilemma. And like a lot of people, it was a life-changing experience. So I basically decided I immediately uh, immediately contacted Joel and told him that I wanted to start filming and... He said yes. I might have actually been the first food documentary to contact him. You must uh, have been. It was... uh, Because
3: after that, I'm sure there were dozens of people. Yeah,
1: I think now he probably doesn't do them anymore. (laughs)
3: Yeah, right. He's
1: (laughs) such a busy guy now. Um, But yes, I went down there and started filming in March of 2007. And the original concept uh, was actually to do sort of a verite documentary over the course of a year. Uh-huh. Uh, where we would film in the spring and then the summer, fall, winter, and you would see the cycles, and it would be sort of a very um, small film in the t- in the sense that we wouldn't be covering a huge range of topics. And then after spending a good portion of 2007 and 2008 at Polyphase, I kept hearing Joel say... Uh, you know, about how the industrial model was so broken and the animals were so mistreated. And so I contacted PETA and, and they gave me, you know, as much footage as, as I wanted of like chickens getting beaten and pigs getting beaten and all this. Right. And I started to cut it in in the places where Joel was talking about the mistreatment. And something didn't feel right. right. I mean, it felt really wrong because it was like, I've never been to these places. Like, I just my background as a, as a journalist, it felt like I needed to actually go out and make the effort. Even if I couldn't get access, go out and make the effort and actually film and talk to the people that work at the, the large-scale commodity operations. And so that basically launched into the next two years of going around the country and filming at commodity farms with commodity farmers.
3: And um, when you talk about commodity farms, let's let's make a real uh, let's let's kind of put a context around that. So these are farmers; these are regular guys, but they're working under contract to corporations like Tyson, Cargill, or Smithfield. Like that's what you're talking about, or do you mean something different?
1: That's what I'm talking about. We uh, we filmed with. Two chicken farmers that were under contract with Pilgrim's Pride, and uh-huh. I believe still are under contract with Pilgrim's Pride. Uh, and then we filmed with a couple of hog farmers that are under contract with Hormel, uh-huh. uh, and then a couple that were under con- that are under contract with Smithfield. Right. Um, so, so yeah, we were basically dealing with the producers. So there's a lot of different stages in various like chicken. Uh, pork and beef—they're all very different industries—and um, we filmed at pretty much every stage, except for the slaughtering on the commercial end. We did film both. We filmed a lot of chicken slaughter on the on the on the sort of pasture-based, grass-based right. model, and then we filmed uh, cattle slaughter on the the small scale. Uh-huh. Uh, but we we didn't, uh, as far as the chain. Of the life cycle of the animals we filmed every part except of the industrial model, except for the the actual kill floor the kill floor right right
3: um, well, so how did you let me ask you this? I know that a lot of people think that um, these farms in fact it 's in many cases it 's posted, nobody is allowed onto the farm, and it mm-hmm. sounds i know it sounds like oh you know they 're trying to keep us out, and yes, they are, but they 're also trying to keep people out because people bring in pathogens, so there 's a whole I mean, there is a science (laughs) side to this, but I think that people see that, you know, no visitors or something like that as as like, oh my God, it's the evil empire. So how did you get, how did you, Were did you find these companies or these farmers were open to having you come in and see what they were doing? Or was that a...
1: Well, we contacted a lot of people. Um, We were very, very persistent and very strategic in who we contacted. So I, uh, in the summer of 2008, Uh, pilgrim's pride was bankrupted yes uh and so i saw that as an opportunity to get access that may or may not have been possible if if you don't have a major integrator that gets bankrupt there's when when someone goes bankrupt a lot of people get uh contracts pulled and it's a very difficult time so they they were much more willing to go on camera because they were In a lot of cases, in very difficult situations financially. Uh So that's how we were able to get access to film at the chicken farms in North Carolina, which was with Johnny Glosson and Sam Talley. Um, And then with the hog farms, it's a lot. We actually, uh, one of our associate producers, Craig Charland, was sending out a bunch of emails to hog farmers all over the country. We had the Gould family in Illinois was Kind enough to respond, and they they actually knowing it was a film with Joel Salton, like opened up their farm, which was kind of amazing. Uh, and then we found our sort of our main character on the commodity side is a fellow by the name of Chuck Wirtz, and he was actually featured in uh, This American Life on their uh, their mm-hmm. television as portion of that. Right. So I figured if he'd already been on television and he'd already sort of Gone on camera with his with his hog farm that maybe he would do it again, Sure. and so I contacted him again and and that was in West Bend, Iowa, which is way up in the northwest corner, uh, and then he opened all kinds of doors. So then other once once you start getting access, then everyone gives you access. So the hardest thing was just getting those first few farmers. Um, the cattle side of thing was actually really the most difficult, which was really surprising because I thought it would be the easiest, uh, but we just. We really wanted to film in Texas at some uh, feed yards there, could not get access. We did end up filming in a uh, feed yard in Iowa, one of Chuck's friends that had a had a feedlot. Uh, but then we ended up not using that footage in the film just because there were so many topics. You have to leave out so much when you're doing a documentary. So one of the things we left out was we explained the cattle industry, but it's in animation. So we don't actually use the footage that we shot in, in Iowa there. So that was... But, yeah, it was, it was a, you know, two years of, uh, of effort to get access, but we did get access. So, I mean, I know a lot of the, like, Food Inc., uh, you know, they, they, they didn't get access to the hog farms or mm-hmm. the chicken farms. Yeah. Um, so we were able to get access. And we were able t- to show you the production models, which is, I think, a good thing.
3: A really good thing. And how, let me ask you just for people's um, sort of sense of, like, size and numbers here. When you were visiting, say, a hog farm, a chicken farm, or, or one of these um, CAFOs, what size, What? how many animals were grouped in those in those facilities, as opposed to somebody like Joel or a similar sort of medium-sized independent farm?
1: Sure. Um the chicken farms obviously you have more animals per building because they're smaller animals mm-hmm. uh so i think the chicken farms are 20,000 birds in a in about a 2 football field long house it's it's when they're baby chicks it's not actually that crowded right. uh because they're smaller but yeah. then when they get to be around 6 or 7 weeks when they're full full grown and getting ready to be put on the truck they're uh it's big enough that you can't really walk. I mean, you. I mean, I filmed at the. I filmed the chickens at one day old, three weeks old, and then six weeks, which was a couple days from slaughter. So mm-hmm. there was a. I mean, they grow very, very quickly.
3: Yeah, my sister and brother-in-law just grew a flock of of uh, Cornish cross. Oh, nice. Not Cornish Cross. Yeah, right, the Cornish Cross. Um, yeah, eight weeks, even on pasture. Right, yeah, yeah. Was, they cause... were surprised. But they could all walk. I mean, none of them had that sort of, you know, how there's the the whole sort of controversy about these genetic variations, which cause the breast to grow too fast and too heavy, and then the birds' bones are too brittle, they're too soft, their legs can't support them. Did you see a lot of that? Did you see a lot of dead birds? Uh. The
1: mortality rates seem to be very high when they were chicks, uh-huh. uh, baby chicks, that seemed to be the highest, and then less so when when they were bigger. Uh, I didn't see a lot of birds that were like falling over. You would see birds that had had heart attacks, uh, where they had just eaten too much. and But it, as far as I didn't I think with the turkey industry there's a lot more of that where the birds are actually falling over but in the chicken industry I didn't there weren't many birds that seemed like they were falling over. Uh they were really crowded um but
3: Right. You know. Um so when I read the trade blogs, um, I see a lot of contempt for these sort of alternative methods, like the pasture, you know, the rotating pasture model that Joel uses or that other farms use um, in, in sort of mainstream agriculture. There's, there's a lot of talk about efficiencies and how, you know, how are we ever going to grow enough food for all these people if we, you know, if we do this like namby-pamby, you know, back to the root stuff. Um, did you feel like the farms, the commodity farms that you visited shared that opinion with you? I mean, shared that opinion? Uh, they Or were they open to other forms of ag?
1: For the most part, they were open. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a couple farmers on the commodity side that were skeptical of the sort of new movement that's going on. But for the most part, the commodity farmers were open to it. And actually, one of the Chuck Wertz, our sort of main character on the commodity side of things, he actually start, converts 5% of his operation over to... It's called Animal Welfare Compassionate uh, Production. (laughs) So. um,
3: You're
4: kidding!
1: No, no.
3: As opposed to animal, he doesn't actually go all the way and get certification for animal welfare approved or certified humane. He's like, he's kind of in the middle there. Well, welfare
1: compassion. I've never heard of that. Before. It's a label, I think, in, in Iowa, but it, it's, it's I mean, it's it's uh, the same as like Whole Foods labels or... Um, it's
3: a third party certification that says that he's doing something better than the status quo.
1: Right. Like it fits all of the, the requirements for Whole Foods, for Nyman Ranch, for... Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, for organic, but the thing is, he can't, he has, well, it's, we have, the storyline is very much a part of our film, Mm -hmm. and it shows how complicated it is for the, uh, commodity farmers to transition.
3: It is. Let's uh, talk about that for a minute. Yeah. Can you explain some of the things that make it hard for them to make that transition? Sure.
1: Well, the biggest thing is, well, there's a lot of things. Uh, one thing is the the fact that they've put hundreds of thousands of dollars into the infrastructure for commodity production. So that's not something you can just sort of easily get rid of. Um, a lot of times, depending on the model that you're doing, if you're, if you're doing... Large scale organic production, for instance, it's still a lot of infrastructure. They still have houses. It's just Mm -hmm. that now the houses have access to the outdoors, which actually makes things a lot more complicated because heating and cooling can be difficult. Uh, So you're talking about a lot of upfront cost if you're going to do large scale organic production or large scale welfare compassionate or any of those models. Um, So that's one thing. But then the biggest if you have the money and the capital to do that, then the big challenge is getting the contract. So one of the stories that we show is uh, Whole Foods actually was about wanted to enter into a, an, an agreement, a contract with Chuck to produce a bunch of organic pork. And then in 2008, right before they were about to like feed their first bushel of organic grain to the pigs, and they'd spent billions of dollars to set up the infrastructure to produce organic pork, then... Whole Foods saw that the economy was about to tank, and they pulled the plug on it. Ouch! But he was all right because he could then sell it. He so then sold it as and pork. Mm-hmm. Um, it just didn't have the organic grain. Um, but and and our our film goes into detail about that storyline. But it just shows that that you know even if you do want to change, you still have all the money and in infrastructure up front, and then you also have to have a market for it. So mm-hmm. that's a huge part of the challenge but I actually just talked to Chuck because I I sent him an advanced copy of the film and I was a little nervous because you know I didn't I mean we clearly are showing that the commodity model is is not as sustainable on an energy level uh we don't talk about ethics or morality in our film we Mm -hmm. felt that Food Inc already did a great job of dealing with that conversation and we didn't need to repeat anything that they'd said uh, so we we just focus on resources, and we look at how the industrial model is really dependent upon uh, cheap oil so I, I didn't know if Chuck was going to like the film or how it felt like how he was portrayed and Then I talked to him a couple days ago and he said that he was really he he was really excited about the film and that he'd actually already shown a couple of his friends who were farmers because he he was actually really excited by joel Salton's methods and they actually bought some land. And they're gonna to try to do what Joel's doing, which was I was like blown away by here's wow. a here's a commodity farmer that w- wants to change. You know, I think that's a lot of the things that people forget is these commodity farmers, they're just doing whatever they need to do to stay in business. Exactly. You know, they're not they're not trying to like
3: they are not the evil empire. They're no, just, they're just ranchers. Right. Right. Whatever. You know, yeah. Or farmers.
1: And they're they're working every day to feed people and they're they're doing, you know, the best that they can do. And and a lot of times they may or may not like the model of production that they're in. That's just what they got handed or what everyone told them they had to do in order to stay in business. Well, it
3: is the way our food is produced in this country. It has an historical um, you know background to it and it's it's a model that has grown over the last 50 years as our population has grown and also as our demand for cheap food has grown.
1: Yeah, I mean we've all we've all been saying we want food as cheap as possible yeah. and that is like the number one thing that is our number one criteria as Americans for I mean, a long time. So, you want food as cheap as possible. This is the model that's gonna that's gonna that's be gonna that. Make it and these are the people yeah. that are that are getting that food to us as cheap as possible. So, you know, I, I, our film we we dedicated our film to America's farmers, and it it's not dedicated to you know America's grass-based farmers. It's dedicated to all of America's farmers because they're they're just doing they're doing the work to actually feed feed us and it's up to us really as opposed to up to the farmers it's really up to us to to demand the type of food or the t- type of food production that we want to see
3: that's yeah that's absolutely my feeling i mean i'm firmly in the camp of you know there's got to be a compromise here there isn't uh, an easy solution to feeding a population that's growing as exponentially quickly as ours is and and as the population is growing around the world so um you know, if you don't really <laughs> appreciate commodity farming then you really have to vote to say, let's change it, let's make it better, but it's it's never gonna go away in my opinion, and it can't. I don't think it can. Do you?
1: Uh that's an interesting question. I do think it I think that ten years from well the thing is I don't think it's sustainable. Like not on a
3: in its current incarnation, perhaps not.
1: Right. I mean, it's just totally dependent upon uh, inexpensive petroleum, inexpensive oil, and I just don't. I think ten years from now we're going to have to have a different model. I just I don't. I don't think we can. We can't make this. The model two thousand eight was a microcosm for what's going to be happening. The price of oil went up to one hundred forty seven dollars a barrel there's just no, and you have the largest producer of chicken in the country, Pilgrim's Pride, go bankrupt. You have Smithfield, the largest producer of pork, contract by 20%, and they were showing a lot of signs of a potential bankruptcy.
3: Well, they sold off all their cattle operations that year, if I'm not mistaken. They'd gone into cattle, that was a mistake for them, and then they dumped that, and I think they're kind of reinvigorated now, but, because they've expanded hugely into Eastern Europe.
1: Sure, I would, I'm more uh, well-versed in the sort of the U.S. side of things. But, uh, I mean, the the reason why 2008, it wasn't a coincidence. It was because the price of oil went up. Right. So, I mean, if we... And then what happens when the price of oil goes up is that the price of grain goes up. Because it's very... You have to plant it with tractors. You have to... A lot of people don't realize you have to uh, spray the corn with uh, insecticides, which is actually done by planes. So, think about the amount of gasoline that that takes. Right then you have to harvest it usually that corn's being grown in iowa then it's getting trucked to feedlots in california and texas then so there's a lot of trucking going on there's a lot of there's a lot of resources a lot of gasoline being consumed Mm -hmm. a lot to, to in order to produce commodity beef or commodity most commodity meats and that's basically that was our approach we didn't we didn't look at at it from an ethical standpoint or Environmental standpoint, we look at it from a resource standpoint. And from a resource sure. standpoint, this current system will not work. And we're going to have to have more farmers if we're going to eat the same amount of meat. We're also going to have to have uh, a very efficient local distribution model.
3: Right. Well, let's, um, Jack, let's take a quick break and come right back with Graham. I have a ton more questions about that very question.
0: I and I didn't know Good. What to do.
3: We're back on the main course. This is the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My guest in studio this morning is Graham Merriweather, the producer, director, and um, just general all-around behind-the-scenes guy of a new documentary about the industry of meat, and it is called American Meat. Um, It's an 85-minute feature film that is the first of uh, what I guess is probably going to be a lot of other projects coming out of your organization, Leave It Better, a nonprofit solutions-based environmental organization that you've been working with for a few years. So, Graham, thanks so much for um, stopping by. And we were just talking about um, the carbon footprint of um, conventional uh, meat farming, as it were, commodity meat raising. And um, so I wanted to go back to that for just a second. I've read a lot of... um, I wouldn't say I've learned a lot of scientific reports, but I've read a lot of anecdotal... um, you know suggestions articles or whatever about that say that um in fact uh confined area feeding operation is a more energy efficient way of raising meat than raising animals um on pasture just because it requires we don't have enough pasture to feed as many animals as we need to feed in order to um come up to our domestic food production needs so how how do you respond to that like how How did you um, do? You think, like the Joel Salatin's of the world, can come up with enough food to feed our population and and meet our domestic, uh, our international needs?
1: Uh, The the answer is yes. I do think that grass based, uh, grass based production can feed the United States
3: without Uh, giving up all the federal grasslands.
1: uh, Yes, Um, the the main. So, during, through our calculations, we would need about 286 million acres of land to be moved into pasture, mm-hmm. and there's actually more than a billion acres of pasture and farmland right now in the United States. Where? Uh, all around the country. Uh, I mean, if you think about Iowa, Nebraska, Illinois, right now they're covered in corn. Yeah. And corn, well, corn and soybean rotation. Now, there's three things that... that, that corn gets used for and that those that soybeans get used for. The first thing is they get used for ethanol. Ethanol is probably the biggest travesty in agriculture today, and, and anyone would tell you that, like on the commodity side or on the... Well,
3: I think, I mean, that's the cause of the feed prices going up sky high, but also it should be noted for folks who don't, haven't been following the ethanol controversy, over 40% of our current corn crop goes into the ethanol program. Um, meanwhile, it costs, I forget, it's like a fifty a gallon to produce that much corn, and you only get a gallon of ethanol out of it. So it's, the, the cost, you know, ratio right. it's, is... It's actually- it's- better
1: it's better to fill your car up with gasoline than it Mm -hmm. is to fill it up with ethanol because it takes more gasoline to produce the ethanol from the corn so so that's that's number one that that most of our arable land in the country is going is to produce ethanol the second thing is to produce high fructose corn syrup which is a huge contributor to diabetes it's a huge contributor to our general lack of health the third thing that that the the corn and soybean is going to is to feed to livestock, and often that's being trucked all around the country at very large uh, so if we were able to take that land that is being used to grow corn and soybeans for three pretty much non debatably bad things for our <laughs> our culture and i mean I, I i've talked to commodity hog farmers who they're like ethanol's the worst thing that's ever happened.
3: Everyone in the farming community yeah, is, it's, is it's united di- on that.
1: It's a disaster. I mean, pretty much everyone it, I mean I, and and I think that the uh, our legislative bodies recently cut back the ethanol which so that there was There have
3: been several initiatives in Congress um, to introduce legislation to kill the ethanol subsidies um supposedly if the ethanol industry can't stand on its own two feet at this point without subsidizing it with our tax paying dollars by the way folks um then it really needs to be you know eliminated from the basic the farm basically the farm bill because that's where where all that money is coming from for them and also i think people should realize that you know, these corn prices that they're, I mean, these are feedstocks. And if you're a farmer, I mean, just to like really hammer this home, corn has gone from, you know, $2 and change a few years ago to over $8 a bushel now. And add into that the cost of transporting it. If you're trucking it in from Iowa and you're in southern Missouri or something, then you're talking 9 $10 a bushel to feed your hogs. This is why the, you know, food prices are skyrocketing around the country.
1: Yeah, and, and that's earlier when I said that I, I think that we have no other option than to have a new model. Mm-hmm. I, I actually don't I don't think commodity farming can can exist uh, much longer. I, I mean two thousand eight was a should have been a warning signal for anyone that's that's uh, studying agriculture or looking to be a farmer. And a lot of really smart commodity farmers are noticing that and starting to starting to come up with other other options, other methods that are more local. And uh, so the initial question was, can can we feed the, uh, the U.S., well, the U.S. and the world? In our film, we only look at the U.S. Mm-hmm. Because feeding the world, I think, is not really a healthy situation uh, in terms of I don't think the U.S. should be producing food for other countries. I think it's much better that other countries produce their own food and then we don't get into these uh, Relationships of dependence, where they're expecting certain amounts of grain or whatever it is from us, and a lot of that's actually been hap- happening a lot. So in 2008, one of the reasons why Pilgrim's Pride went bankrupt, and one of the reasons why Smithfield had to contract by 20 percent, was because Russia and China, our two biggest importers of uh, chicken and pork, basically said they saw the the oil prices and they couldn't afford our prices so they started domesticating their chicken and hog production and they started doing a lot more producing themselves so it just doesn't make sense to be shipping things all around the world i mean there's some things that it does but but for for meats and things like that it just doesn't i mean there's some niche items like for instance the chinese love chicken feet so like we have a huge amount of chicken feet that wouldn't get used so that's something that makes sense to to send to but right but so i'm not against all exporting i'm just saying that right in 2008 20 percent of commodity production was exported not and that's that. that's not a healthy percentage for for i mean it's it, you're very dependent upon basically other countries continuing to buy your product and if you're a company and and the oil prices go up and they no longer can afford it then you you have a Huge problem on then you your have hands. A glut.
3: Right. Well, we do export a lot of um, hogs and chickens. I think we import a lot of beef, actually, in this country. Particularly ground beef. We buy a lot of beef from South America um, to service our hamburger addiction here. Um, <laughs> Jack is looking at me meaningfully. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, you know, I think I, I think that um, one of the things we which we haven't talked about a little bit is how. Um, how commodity farming and and really the rural population in, in large measure in this country does not really buy into the idea of climate change and because they don't buy into the idea of climate change and i and i only say this because i obsessively read several trade blogs about the cattle industry specifically drovers cattle network i read meetingplace.com um, these are places where you really get sort of the down and dirty guys who are willing to comment and just blow off a lot of steam about the whole farming um, thing and so if you if you're a commodity farmer and you wanted to switch over or say you believed say you were okay let's start with this First of all, how do you convince these guys that the way that they're farming is potentially part of what's causing the drought, for instance, in Texas? Right now, Texas is enjoying record-breaking drought, and the uh, they're slaughtering their herds of cattle by the bajillion. We have the lowest cattle stocks in the history of this country since 1958 because there's no water. We can talk about that in a minute. but
1: Sure. I mean, well, I guess the first thing I would say is that I feel like with the challenges that we face globally and domestically, that the first thing we have to do is we have to stop thinking about it in terms of us and them. It's all us, and there's no time to point fingers. So you know, I the only thing I want to do with a, talking to a conventional farmer is say, first of all, I appreciate what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I think that you work a lot. you work very hard. And it's because of your work that we're able to eat. The second thing I would say is, look at these look at these facts. Look at the look at 2008, which you had a bad summer. Almost certainly in the summer, every almost every farmer did, except for that one percent that's in this growing niche of locally produced grass based meat. They had a good summer in the summer of 2008. So, uh, you know, we we I've had a lot of success in my communications with commodity farmers by not by just looking at the economics of it. I mean, if you any smart businessman wants to diversify their portfolio, diversify their operations, and in some ways there can be this beautiful synergy because if you actually diversify your farm, that that gives you more Uh, buffers in a bad economic time because if you're producing eggs and chickens, chicken and pork and beef, then if one of those markets drops, you always have your eggs or you always have your... And at the same time you have that mutual synergy from a biological standpoint. So that's where Joel's inventions are so exciting because what he does is he'll take... uh, I mean, he's kind of an agricultural genius and I don't use that word lightly. I mean, he... He, he took the way that herbivores and birds uh, behave together on the Serengetis in Africa and came up with this concept that he calls the eggmobile. So he takes portable electric fences and he divides his land up into paddocks and he moves his cows from one paddock to the next every couple days. Mm-hmm. And then he took his chickens, which is what happens in nature. The birds will follow the herbivores. And he put them up on a tractor, which he calls the eggmobile. And then he moves the eggmobile to the paddock where the cows were a couple days before and what's happened is in the cow dung there's been a bunch of beetles and, and larva that have started to develop so the chickens will eat that and then they produce these incredibly beautiful bright orange strong firm albumin eggs that when you look at one of those eggs compared to an egg from the grocery store it's just shocking how different they look and how much healthier that one looks compared to the other but then Joel is actually Grossing over two million dollars a year now, and this is a small family farm, uh, and he's keeping a hundred percent of the dollar that's spent. That's another challenge for the commodity farmers. A lot of times, especially with the chicken and hog farmers, they're getting eight cents on the dollar. So they're I mean, you have these you have these systems set up, and it was very apparent with uh, Sam Tally and Johnny Glosson in in North Carolina with Pilgrim's Pride. Where th- the system is set up so that they're, they're always behind. Yeah. So th- they'll take out hundreds of thousands of dollars to set up a chicken house. And then by the time that they've paid off the payment, the technology has changed. So they have to retro- retrofit or start a new barn. Wow. And then they're just stuck in these cycles of dependence where they're not getting any income. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, uh, it's just a bad model uh, for, a, for a lot of different ways. Whereas Joel... Has all these different animals? He's producing all these different products. He's keeping 100% of it, and it's just a much more profitable model. Which is why some commodity farmers are starting to look into it and right. and uh, and really think about adopting some of these. You can keep your your conventional chicken house, but then you know maybe try raising hogs. You know on, for a niche market because you're gonna find that that'll help you out a lot on a diversified. Uh, so your income, and your when when the chicken market drops, you'll have pigs, or you know. So it, it's a good way. Mm-hmm. Diversification is smart on a lot of different levels.
3: It certainly makes sense to me. Um, we only have a few minutes left, so I wanted to um, just check in with you about um, the farm bill and whether or not you think the farm bill, whether or not sort of the message that you're sending um, about commodity farming being. You know, environmentally unsustainable, but also not a great economic model for people. Um, whether that is, do you think that um, legislation is going to follow where the farm bill is going to start including money for farms to remediate or to retrofit their outfit so that it can do what you're saying, which is diversify uh, the livestock production?
1: Yeah, it's a, subsidies are a huge part of the debate. And we're about to go to Iowa, where I'm sure we'll have some great conversations about that with the farmers out there. Uh, currently, we give about $15 billion a year to commodity agriculture. Um, in our in our film, we talk about the fact that we feel like we should shift a good portion of that money over to this new growing uh, type of agriculture. Uh, when we screened in Virginia, which is sort of a very kind of independent, almost libertarian type of vibe that they have going on mm-hmm. out there, they that they said, "Oh, we loved your film. We agree with everything except for you should pull all subsidies, pull all fifteen billion. There should be no subsidies. Level the playing field," which was pretty bold. Oh, that's uh, an
3: interesting yeah, position. Yeah, yeah, it
1: was very interesting. And then they cited that in nineteen eighty one, New Zealand did that and had great success, and they've never had subsidies since. Obviously, New Zealand is a that's little a bit much smaller, sm- <laughs> a little smaller place. Um, <laughs> but I'm guessing that in Iowa we might have a much different perspective on subsidies. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to presuppose anything, so. Well, in
3: Iowa specifically where the corn subsidies have been so very profitable for them, it's it's kind of that's that would be a real test market for you. Um I want to just before we wrap up this segment and go to our our butcher girls, we have we have the Butcher's Guild up next. Um I just want to check in with you. First of all, I want people to know where they can see the film mm-hmm. and also tell people just a little bit more about your organization Leave It Better so they know where to find you.
1: Sure. Um well, American Meat is being screened in Iowa and Kansas over the course of the next two weeks. So, if you happen to be in that part of the country, then you should come out. We're gonna. We have our screenings listed on our Facebook page. Uh, we also have a Twitter account, American Meat, and then our website is AmericanMeatFilm dot uh, As far as our organization. We actually have two organizations. We have Leave It Better LLC, which is the organization that's producing the documentary. Uh, and then we have the Leave It Better Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to uh, telling stories and educating youth about how they can grow their own food. So we actually have an educational program that puts gardens in the schools. Beautiful. Uh, and that has been a, an amazing uh, success so far we've been in 10 schools this past year and students are actually learning how to grow their own food and they actually create a documentary about it as they as they grow the food. So oh, that's very cool. cool. Yeah. Well,
3: Graham, um, let's wrap this up. I hope you'll stay for the next segment, The Butcher's Guild, with um, Marisa Guajana and Tia Harrison, who are the founders of The Butcher's Guild and a, and a very interesting pair of young ladies. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute with uh, more about these meaty topics and how they affect our food chain. Welcome back to the main course on Heritage Radio Network. Our program today is sponsored by Barter House Wines. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My buddy, Graham Merriweather from American Meat, is staying in the studio to talk with the two butchers, Marisa... Marisa Gugiano and Tia Harrison who are the co-founders. Hi ladies. Thank you so much for joining us today. And you guys are the co-founders of the brand new Butchers Guild. I'm going to read a little bit about you both. Marisa, you're an activist in food and and agriculture forever. And um, last year (laughs) for this show, you came on to talk about your book, Primal Cuts, Cooking with America's Best Butchers, which came out in 2010. And you also own a wholesale meat business called Sonoma Direct. And I understand from your website that your book is going to come out in a new edition yeah we're going to print a new edition next year It sold
2: out so we're going to okay. add some new butchers that we've met over Fantastic. the last year with the guild so
3: exciting That's beautiful and tia harrison is the chef and co-owner of the restaurant social as well as co-owner of Avedano's butcher shop which i think is a, was started by you and a couple of other women right
4: Yeah, I have two other business partners, Melanie Eisman and Angela Wilson, Mm -hmm. and we opened about four years ago.
3: I remember reading about it in the meat paper. Uh, yeah, because I, 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 I am the queen of the meatheads, as it turns out. I really have like this total fetish about it. So um, I'm going to read this little, um, this little Merriam-Webster dictionary definition of guild, because I loved the idea that you guys started a guild. It's a medieval concept, um, and it implies uh, you know real integrity in a trade. So the, the, um, the de- first definition is an association of people with similar interests or pursuits, especially... medieval association of merchants or craftsmen and the second definition is a group of organisms that use the same ecological resource in a similar way as in, for instance a feeding guild i thought that was a fascinating description so um first of all let's hear a little bit about how you started up is this from is this directly as a result of your research in um primal cuts marisa or this was like something that you and tia dreamed up as like wow this would be such a cool thing to do well, it mostly
2: started with a conversation between um, Tia and me. It was um, our brainchild, but I definitely realized while making Primal Cuts that so many of the butchers that I had talked to and interviewed were self-taught. Um, the older generation, and there's there's several of them in there, ha- were mentored into the trade, which is the way that it was traditionally done. But the people in you know their 30s and 40s learned by watching videos or picking up something here and there and so we just thought it would be so valuable to start a network and let people communicate with one another and share their wisdom so everyone's not recreating the wheel all over the country.
3: Yeah, in your manifesto you say the Guild, I'm quoting here, the Guild aims to unite butchers who share professional and ethical standards having adopted practices of sustainability, proper technique, community involvement, and humane care of livestock. Now that's a far Mm. cry from the, um, uh, you know, old Tommy Flanagan from Wakefield, Rhode Island (laughs) who was like, you know, would go on a bender about every two weeks and disappear from the shop. I mean, I don't think he could have cared less about the welfare of anything, at least of all himself. So how do you get, um, I mean, the new generation obviously is into it, but uh, do you think you'll be able to attract um, older butchers into sort of a nicer model of doing of doing their craft?
2: Well, well we're, we, we're trying to, go ahead, yeah.
4: Uh, well, we believe that um, positive sort of inspiration is um can infect you, you know, in a good way when you're around people who are doing things um, in a different way, but they're working, and and consumers are excited about it, and it's rewarding on many different levels. Um, there's definitely a gap, you know, between the the generations, but we feel like um, just talking about what our members do and um, highlighting uh, what we believe to be a better way um, is inspiring because I've. I've experienced it personally and it's, you know, being around different people who are guild members now who do really amazing things has made, you know, has changed how I do things in my restaurant and um, continue to sort of shape, um, you know, the way that I uh, run my businesses. So we feel like that is going to continue to um, help people and inspire people.
3: Interesting.
2: Yeah. We're not – we're trying to be very inclusive and not – we're not leaving the old guys out. Like, their skills are generally, you know, really valuable and above and beyond what a lot of the new guys know as far as cutting meat. So, you know, there's something to learn on both sides, and we're just hoping to be, like, good role models, like Tia was saying, and hope, you know – Somewhere along the line, the entire industry will elevate.
3: <laughs> that is to be hoped. Um, one of the things you talk about um, on your website is that um, the butchers who are committed to working with whole animals, which is a lot of these, you know, younger generation guys. Um, yeah that they're they're experiencing a great deal of economic hardship. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? And because, I mean, I was thinking to myself, well, isn't if I'm buying directly from a farmer and I'm buying a whole animal, don't I get a better price than if I'm just buying middle meats, for instance? Well... Or is it the... when There's a couple of things. I mean, for one thing,
2: buying from a small farm, the meat itself is just more expensive. Mm-hmm. It's not subsidized, you know, and it's, it's a, it just costs more for a farmer to do something on a small scale. So what's coming in is more expensive. And then when you have to get rid of the whole animal you have to charge more for everything to make that price back. Like if you're just buying prime rib and you've got no waste, like basically you just cut it into steaks, there's no waste anywhere, then you can just, you know, charge a little markup. It's much more straightforward than when you have to like find something to do with the, you know, tons of fat that comes out of it and all these other things that you're paying for. Mm -hmm. You have to do something profitable with that or you have to charge more for all of the rest of the meat. That does present and a problem. And the
4: labor, you know. And the labor, it costs yeah. costs more labor-wise. It's not as um, controllable. You know, you end up with different things each time, which is the um, part that's exciting because it takes, it's um, creative and there's a craft to it. But it's a lot more work and it costs more. And you have to sort of retrain your consumers as to why they should pay more for something that they're accustomed to paying a lot less.
3: Well, that was something that uh, earlier in the show when um, Graham Merriweather, my first guest, who's still in the studio with us, he's the producer and uh, director of American Meat, which uh, is a new documentary mm-hmm. that I'm sure will be crossing your radar very soon, if <laughs> it hasn't already. And, um, and we were talking about the fact that um, people are so used to cheap meat especially and um and how there's really such an educational process involved in convincing people that um that actually buying the cheapest possible ingredients is not always the best possible way to shop so how do you as part of your outreach in the butcher's guild about that i mean certainly in your restaurant tia i would imagine that you can make that that claim pretty clearly
4: yeah i mean we we It's true in my restaurant, you know, I can teach my staff to to um, explain that to our customers, and it's you know a small, controllable environment. but for the guild, you know we we hope that in some time once we we get a stronger presence that consumers will come to us to find places to shop and also read about um, our mission and understand. Uh, what it means and why it's
2: important on so many different levels. Um, and also, like, a lot of the different butchers have different strengths, and that's right. one of the great things about connecting everyone is that some people are amazing at making charcuterie, and others are really, really talented self-promoters and, and marketers. And so I think that members can get from one another different ways of, of sharing that information with the consumers or or getting, you know, more committed um, consumers into their shops and just you know figure out the tools for
3: sharing that well that was the thing that really interested me um, about your website and about the whole concept is that um, the way that people can leverage uh, what they're doing I mean use their membership in the in the excuse me for using that word leverage I really hate that sorry sorry <laughs> strike that from the record please um, but I but using being a member of the marketing of the uh, butcher's Guild as a marketing platform for mm-hmm. their particular store and what they're doing I mean I mean, if you say that you can put a sticker in the window that says you're a member of the Butcher's Guild, which, which as you have on your website, it says you guys have a code of conduct that people have to swear by. You have you have an oath that you I mean, it's like it was really interesting to me that you you drilled down into these like very (laughs) medieval concepts. I thought that was so cool. I loved it. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit about that, about sort of the commitment to, you know, a particular criteria that you believe in?
2: Well, the Code of Conduct is a legal document that everyone, all our members sign, which um, is a protection to keep the Guild honorable. And it basically says you're not going to talk poorly of other Guild members. You're not going to talk poorly of the meat industry. You're going to talk about what you do in a positive, great way without, um, you know, being negative or dragging other people down because it's a very competitive industry because it's so hard to make money in it and then the oath is our way of talking positively about what our members are doing and saying that they've got um that every good butcher has um great hands heart voice and source um which is having um <laughs> I'm <gonna> go- <clears throat> <laughs> no, that's great i love it a
4: voice so, is go ahead to- yeah Okay. Well the yeah. heart is saying that they maintain maintain integrity and relationships with customers and vendors. The source is that they aim to support local sustainable farms and practice whole animal butchery. The hand is that they strive to improve their knife skills and knowledge of the trade. And the voice is that they're an active community member and encourage a healthy food system. And we believe that all of those things are really rewarding personally and on in business. And... Mm-hmm. Um, really are you know sort of the foundation to creating a successful environment for for what we're doing so we put it out there and asked that you know our members um you know sort of vow to uphold these standards because we did feel inspired by the model of the guild and we did feel that you know that type of of model is something that kind of died out and um is lacking you know in our
3: um, Very much so. I mean, I think in every profession it's lacking actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I
2: mean, a sense of integrity about what you do. (laughs) You you see a lot of guilds popping up because there's a lot of trades that have, you know, people are seeking to get back to the roots of. Of making food and making things. And so they're banding together to, to do that outside of the commercial market. And it takes cooperation and shared knowledge. So it's a model that I think is, I
3: see coming back a lot. That's a very interesting yeah. development. I, I think it's just great. I love it. Because it mm. implies yeah, integrity. Like, yeah. Yeah.
4: And we need to like fight for our craftsmen, you know, it's, it, as things progress. Um, you've seen a lot of different craft industries take major hits. I've seen it um, in my family and um, and friends, and they're important. You know, we need to have have craftsmen around, and we need to support them and understand that their skill is something that is worth um, promoting and fighting for.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, since I have all three of you here, Graham. I'm gonna bring you back into the conversation here. I would like each of you to tell me what you see as the future of the livestock agricultural industry. So let's start with um Tia. What do you think is gonna happen? In terms of how you know, commodity versus sustainable, blah blah blah. Well, you
4: know, Maurice and I talk about this quite a bit. We don't think that anything is going to you know they figured out a way to feed a lot of people really efficiently, but you know our belief is that we need more diversity. And um, as far as the future of it, I don't have a lot of experience in in farming um, or dealing with farms and all that. I'm kind of someone who's a little bit more on the working with the end result. So I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question directly, but I feel that, you know, as we move forward, people are going to continue to learn about the effects of the food that we've been eating, you know, for the past 50, 60 years, when things sort of shifted, and the the disconnect has already been identified, and people will continue to search for um, connection to their food.
3: Mm-hmm. I think that's true. I think that's becoming Mm -hmm. more and more of a trend. Um, How about you... Uh, Marissa, what do you think is going to happen in the live? I mean, because but one of the things that you guys say, I'll, I'll just let me preface this for a second, is that you your vision of the new, quote unquote, new butcher uh, implies a much greater connection to the agricultural side than yeah. has ever been in my experience. I mean, I worked in a butcher shop for five years. I worked with some really old school guys. Uh, believe yeah. me, they don't give a shit where their f- stuff yeah. is coming from. I mean, we, we would trumpet with great pride that our, our food came from Montfort of Colorado, <laughs> only to find out that that's. Like, you know, the evil empire and its genesis. You
0: know? Well,
2: <laughs> at some point, that was a great improvement, you know, and that was exciting. And that's why people talked about it, that we had this great efficient food system. But, right. I mean, like, there's a reason why everyone is talking about food right now. It's going to become a, an issue of national security. I mean, it's going to become extremely Thank important God. because land is getting very scarce. And half of our agricultural land is used to feed and raise animals. And so that's, that's a huge swath of land in our country, and it's only going to get more important. And so I don't think, you know, as Tia was saying, I don't think the efficiencies of the modern food system are going to die away. But, um, but we also are going to have to have other resources to get food Directly in our own communities um, to feed people, and we're not going to be able to be shipping things all across the world in the same way. You know, I think that that model is going to shift. So, I think we're going to eat smaller animals. We're going to eat more efficient animals. Um, certainly more efficient than beef. Um, well, I hope we're and, all going to start
3: eating goat because Heritage Foods USA has a big goat promotion coming up. In yeah,
2: October. goat, chicken, <laughs> rabbits. I mean, I that's what I see is you know, a part of the, of the future. And, um, we're going to start eating closer to home because fuel and, um, you know, the resources that make it possible for us to live in a global economy, they're, they're not going to go away, but they're, you know, it's going to get more precious. So what do you think Graham? Yeah, I mean,
0: that's a,
1: that's a big question, obviously. Uh, from my experience, which is mainly been dealing with producers, so farmers that are raising chicken, beef, and pork. Uh, I think that because of the price of oil, I I do think that we're going to be seeing a major shift in our agriculture. I think that we can't continue to be devoting so much of our resources towards growing corn and soybeans when corn and soybeans are going to the high fructose corn syrup, the ethanol, and the uh, feeding of animals. So my prediction would be that we're going to see a massive shift. Uh, I think that if we're going to continue to have the same amount of meat consumption, it's only going to be if we have a lot more people start farming, a lot more people start raising their own animals. Uh, So I guess ultimately the future of the meat industry is up to each of us so if we decide that uh that we want to have a certain type of of meat a certain type of food then we're going to shape the way that the industry changes and then there's other external factors like the price of oil which will force things in a certain direction uh so there'll be a lot of different types of changes but i think the changes are going to be very very large and uh and sweeping in the next ten years.
3: And do you think that um, do uh, this is again a question for all three of you? Do you think that uh, the current big players in commodity livestock agriculture are are making that shift, or are understanding that consumers are moving in that direction and? And actually do you think consumers outside of the coastal areas let's face it there's a lot of people inside of the you know the heartland of this country that a don't believe in climate change and b don't want to see their food prices go up any higher than they already are how, how you know like how is that all going to play out like the the big companies have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo and so do the well, people who don't want to spend more than a dollar for chicken you know dollar a pound
2: for can, chicken you can bet your bottom dollar that the um, the big players in the meat industry are watching all this stuff very closely. I mean, they're, you know, studying the price of oil and the, you know, acreage down to the last square foot of land that's available. I mean, they're, they're watching this stuff and, you know, but it's a huge organism <laughs> that makes our meat so cheap. And so... You know, I I think like Graham said, you know, something dramatic will happen with the the price of oil and they'll be forced to make a change because otherwise changes happen very slowly, you know, to to change all those moving parts. But they're certainly watching it and the U.S. government is watching it and I'm sure there's a lot of nail biting going on about it.
3: Yeah, do we expand further in the United States, or should we buy up more swaths of Poland and the Let's Ukraine? Buy Argentina is what yeah. they're doing now. I mean, you know exactly. I mean, they're just like shifting their Smithfield has shifted their a lot of their hog farming uh, focus onto Eastern Europe, where they're buying uh-huh. up great. You know, they're just buying farms by the bucket load and, and from, uh-huh. you know, putting people right into the same um, model that Graham described earlier in the program, where you're, you're scurrying to um, create the expensive infrastructure you need in order to produce according to their protocols. So um, I don't know if I see it changing anytime soon. I think it'll go through Europe first in this American model, and then we'll, I hope, lead the change further But um, let's hear a little bit before we um, wrap this up, which we have to do in a few minutes. Let's hear a little bit about um, some of the programs that you guys offer, uh, events, you have a TV thing on your Butchers Guild website. And lastly, I absolutely love the fact that you have kids' programs around butchering. I thought that was hilarious, having a child who grew up watching SpongeBob. I would so much have preferred (laughs) that that she learned about whole animal, you know butchery. <laughs> Sorry.
4: Well, uh, I have to say that the kids program thing to me was um, sort of my my project that I was really inspired about because my daughter is eight years old and she had a farmer come to her school and they planted some vegetables and it, they spent probably a half an hour with her and a group of kids and After that, she went to a restaurant and ordered a vegetable platter, you know, like. Cool. (laughs) And it was so cool to me because normally she would have ordered a pizza, you know, and I was impressed by it. And I thought, you know, I didn't grow up shopping at butcher shops. Our kids are not growing up shopping at butcher shops, not like my grandmother did. So I feel like the trade needs to be introduced into their minds so that the more information that they have, more information they have to make better choices as adults so that's sort of my thought behind it and the idea of why we want to get involved with children so it sounds funny when everyone you say butchers and kids they're like uh totally
2: (laughs) yeah well you know 50 years everyone grew up with animals in the backyard i mean that was so common and and there was a it's a natural, you know, realization of that life process and of, you know, small-scale agriculture. And now kids are just, like, horrified and completely confused about it. So if there's a gentle way to sort of let them know, like, hey, vegetables come from the ground and animals are once alive, and then, um, you know
3: yeah I, I think it's really important. I love it, and obviously Graham, your organization has a lot of children's programs, and you know that's part of your mandate there so
1: yeah i mean we uh well in our in our documentary, we actually do a a segment on Stone Barn Center, which is mm-hmm. uh about twenty miles north of the city, and they're all about educating uh, new farmers uh, and one of the things they do is they have butchering workshops, and it's so important because you know if you're going to eat meat which uh a lot of people are most 97% of Americans do then you're going to need to understand or at least it's it's I think it's healthy to understand the process and
3: I think it's acknowledged. It's not even understood. It's acknowledged that this started out as a quadruped or, you know, right. <laughs> or a feathered creature that was, in fact, alive. Yeah, it mm-hmm. was.
1: And just a couple yep. generations ago, everybody knew how to butcher a chicken and dress yeah. a chicken. Every And, you know, part of the culture was in the fall, you would slaughter pigs and then you would have a pig roast and everyone would come together. And... You know, and that was something that obviously kids would be a part of. Uh, you know, they'd have to either pluck the feathers or and you're seeing that more and more with the small farmers, people are coming together and saying, All right, well, let's have ten ten friends out and we'll butcher a hundred chickens and then everyone becomes a part of the process and it's not something mm-hmm. that uh that you need to be sort of ashamed of or hidden 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 from you the thought that something gets Killed. That's part of the process of of life. So I think I think it's great to to bring to bring community and in the in the in the process of bringing community together to bring kids into that, so that it's something that's part of their fundamental understanding of food.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have one more question for all of you, and then I think we'll probably wrap this up. But um, and here is something that just occurs to me as I I mean I'm older than all of you. Um, I've been in the food business for thirty five years. And um, the thing that I have observed most closely in this in this last say decade or even last five years is the resurgence of interest and in meat as a center of the plate item in restaurants and also just in family homes. And you know, fifteen years ago it was way cooler to be a vegetarian. Meat was not cool at all. And now all of a sudden it's like, it's the cool thing. And you're kind of an idiot if you don't like participate. So what do you think brought that about? I mean, what's, what's your take on that? You guys. Uh, well, I think it's partly that, um,
2: this like desire to connect. I mean, I think that a lot of chefs got really excited From my understanding, a lot of food trends start in kitchens, in commercial kitchens.
0: Yeah, I would agree.
2: And then kind of move into media and then to the grocery stores, and then they sort of take hold in homes. And I think chefs got really excited about making meat again. I mean, it's got a lot of fat. It's delicious. And we got really interested in Italian food again and and in, like, regional European food and South American food. And all of that is really rooted in... um, you know, in part in this process of killing animals, you know, a couple times a year and and preserving the meat and, you know, preparing things from that. So I think that's part of it.
4: Yeah. I mean, for me as a chef, I think it's just a natural progression of people trying to, and chefs trying to tighten their sources. And at some point, they realized that they were only able to get this or that from their meat purveyors, so they started looking to farms. And then they were presented with the um, the challenge of, okay, well, I can get a really great pig from a local farm, but I can only get it in a whole piece. So I'm going to stick it into my restaurant and do what I can do with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then they had to teach themselves what to do with it, and um, that was exciting. It's inspiring as a chef create dishes every day you know you have to constantly be working on that and so um it was something exciting to talk about they started talking about where they got it from and the you know their customers got excited and they made great products and it tastes better and the whole experience was um rewarding and um for everyone the
3: i think that's a great analysis
2: yeah,
3: yeah. Really I
2: also analysis. think like I think also vegetarianism kind of jumped the shark nutritionally. Like it started out by people eating really close to the dirt and like growing things, and you know it came from a, a spirit of of being connected. And vegetarianism has gotten so commercial, and a lot of what people I know that are vegetarians eat is like really processed food mm-hmm. and I was vegetarian for a long time I know I ate a lot of hemp cheese and other things that are just like should not <laughs> should not exist on this earth
3: gastronomically and, speaking they're an <laughs> abomination
2: yeah I mean it just didn't feel good you know and I think a lot of people that I know that had that shift like they started eating meat again and found that they could get this really great source of meat and they were like oh I actually feel better when I have some like really good you know, healthy
3: protein. Yeah. So animal protein. Yeah. I'm a carnivore since, you know, birth. Basically I grew up on like, (laughs) yeah, meat was my main thing. It was the only thing I ate. I never touched a vegetable (laughs) willingly until I was in my twenties. How about you, Graham? What did you think?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I totally agree that the resurgence in, in, uh, in sort of these heritage meats, uh, is really, it's really driven by the the chefs i think uh and so i, I mean i we interviewed dan barber and uh mark newsom some great chefs uh on the east coast for for our documentary and one of the things that dan said that was really sort of memorable was he said that it's all about the challenges that you face. So like when you like we as artists or whatever, usually it's what limits you that that leads to your creativity. And so when you're limited by you can't just get an infinite number of pork loins or whatever the 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 main meat is, you need to figure out how to use the ears, you need to figure out how to use the cheeks, you need to figure out how to use the the every single part. And as a creative person, which chefs are very creative then you have to figure out what you're going to do to make that an incredible meal and then that creativity and that passion that goes into taking those limitations that you get when you're sourcing your food locally you, there you have a lot more limitations than you do from the industrial model but that limitation actually drives has been driving this incredible passion and creativity that's coming to the surface and then everyone wants to be a part of it because people flock to passion, people flock to creativity, mm-hmm. and they also flock to great food. So mm. I think it's the limitations that, that the sustainable agriculture sets up for the chefs that have really driven what, what it is that's happening with, with our food.
3: Very, mm. very, very excellent. Excellent analysis. Thank you. Well, I want to thank all three of you for participating. Um, Marisa and T. I really appreciate you um, getting up. I guess it's not that early thank in you. California, but still, um, it is a Sunday morning. Thanks so much for joining us. I urge people to look at your website. It's thebutchersguild.com, right? dot .org. org butchersguild.org check it out folks and of course American Meat um, by Graham Merriweather and leaveitbetter.org check it out folks I uh, thank you everybody for listening stay tuned for the Mike and Judy show that comes up next and uh, I'm your host Katie Kiefer I'll be back in a few weeks I'm taking a little vacation myself so long and thanks for listening bye bye folks
5: Figure on the Pole and City Winery are proud to present the Summer Barbecue Blowout Festival, August 6th from noon to 4pm. The barbecue is happening at City Winery, located at 155 Varick Street in New York City. Restaurants featured at this event are Empire Mayonnaise, Van Dag, Momofuku Mofar, Imperial No. 9, Myland, Mexique, Craft, Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola, The Meatball Shop, and Dos Toros. Providing the soundtrack for the day are Midnight Magic, Computer Magic, New Villager, Punches, Ducky, DJ Autobot, and the Snacky Tune DJ. VIP and general admission tickets are available at CityWinery.com. Fingering the pole for City Winery, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Heritage Foods USA, New York Magazine, Rake of vodka, Sonar, Smile, Guilt City, Sub Zero and Wolf. Please come out and join us for a day of fun, food, and dancing. For more information, go to www.fotpnyc.com.